Amen, amen. If you've been with us, you know that for the past several weeks, we've been working through a single passage of Scripture challenging us to partner with God as He develops certain Christ-like character traits or virtues in us. Today, we arrive at the final virtue, love. Let's read our text from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature." having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. We'll be focusing on verse 7 today, which says, And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So, flowing out of the godliness that we discussed last week comes brotherly kindness and love, but as I'll explain in a moment, we're actually talking about just one virtue here, that being love. Now, I want us to think about why love would be listed here along with character traits like moral excellence, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. I think love is listed with these virtues because the inspired author is referring to a particularly virtuous kind of love. We'll get into this more later, but from the beginning, I want you to understand that Christ-like love or love that flows out of godliness is not just any old kind of love. We are talking about love that is offered to enemies. We are talking about self-sacrificing love, love that is willing to die for another maybe even for someone who's not particularly good. I'm afraid this kind of love is a quality few people ever develop. But according to Scripture, those who know Jesus not only have the ability to display this kind of love, but our text even says that those believers who do not develop this kind of love are basically blind and useless to God. That's really what it says in the passage we read a moment ago. But before I get ahead of myself, let's further define the virtuous love which this passage speaks. The best way to explain it is probably with a real-life example. So let me tell you about a man named Jeremy Courtney, founder of Preemptive Love Coalition. Jeremy is a Christian surgeon who moved to Iraq in order to perform pediatric heart surgeries. Over time, Jeremy found others who would join him and 
Now his organization has saved many lives. But at one point, as his work was becoming known, one of the radical Muslim clerics in Iraq issued a fatwa, basically a death warrant, on Jeremy. The fatwa said, we must stop these heart surgeries lest it lead our children and their parents to love their enemies. Isn't that interesting? They were concerned that the people would begin to love their enemies because one of their enemies was acting in love toward them. Some people say all religions are the same. But Jesus specifically said that we should love our enemies. And just by the way, it was another Muslim who saved Jeremy from the fatwa. So keep that in mind. Back to the point about sacrificial love, despite the threats, Jeremy Courtney continues to show the love of Christ by saving the lives of children in Iraq. He serves at great risk there along with his wife and kids. This is the kind of love that is a virtue, you see. This is the kind of love we are called to develop by relying on God's power even as we apply all diligence. The question is, to what extent do we in this room practice such a virtuous kind of love? I mentioned that although our text refers to brotherly kindness and then mentions love separately, that both of these are really all about love. Let me explain. The Greek word translated as brotherly kindness here is Philadelphia. And as many of you probably know, this word means brotherly love. You know this because you know that Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. Now, as a St. Louis Cardinals fan, I can tell you that Philadelphia baseball fans are not loving at all. But that's still what the word means in the Greek. The translators of the New American Standard Version, that which we're using here, chose to translate Philadelphia in this place as brotherly kindness. But there are many other places in Scripture where this word is translated simply as love. The problem is that if the translators had done so in this particular spot, the translation would have read, in your love, love. That's why they chose to give us further description in the first term while simply using the word love for the second term. For the record, translators have a lot of choices to make about words because if they start including the meaning of each word along with the word itself, for one thing, the Bible gets really, really long, even longer, right? And for another thing, doing so can add subjectivity to the text. Regardless, understand that throughout the New Testament, Philadelphia is a reference to the special kind of love that we can enjoy in the spiritual family known as the church, love of the brothers and sisters, also called the family of God, the body of Christ, sometimes even referred to as the brethren. And so this phrase, brotherly kindness, is a good translation of Philadelphia, where brotherly kindness refers to love in the church family. Many of you heard enough sermons or attended enough Sunday school classes to remember the three Greek words for love. Eros, Philadelphia, and agape. Understand that the latter two terms are used in verse 7, our text for today. Paul writes, in your godliness have Philadelphia, and in your Philadelphia have agape. Agape means self-sacrificing love, that is love like that of Christ, the one who died to save the world. 
demonstrating this ultimate kind of love, even for his enemies. Peter says, from out of your brotherly love in the church, also practice self-sacrificing love for the rest of the world, or more broadly, for those who are harder to love, even your enemies, even those who show hatred for the brethren or the church. Peter is pointing to a principle we see throughout Scripture. He's saying that our love for each other in the church should be so strong that it overflows into self-sacrificing love of the world, the people in the world. As we grow in love for each other, we have something to offer people in the world. The love we experience in the church is intended to fuel our love for those who Jesus longs to bring into the fold. Now, let's take this one step further. In our text, what leads to this brother, brotherly kindness or brotherly love? What leads up to this in the flow? Talked about it last week, godliness. And as we defined this word last week, godliness has to do with our devotion to God. One translation even translates it as devotion to God. In other words, godliness is about walking in a continual love relationship with God, where His love is the center of your life. And let's see, what is this threefold flow of love from God to the church and then to the world remind me of? Oh yes, the vision or the overarching goal for Go Church. If you look at the words on the outside of the circle, some of which are cut off by black stuff, oh well, you can hopefully figure it out. Loving God, loving each other, loving everyone. Maybe this helps with memory. <laughs> Can't see it. Loving God, loving each other, loving everyone. This is the vision, the big picture of what we want to see happening through Go Church. It all starts with the love of God because He is the source of all love. In our text, we see this in the virtue of, God, virtue of godliness, which again is about devotion to God. And this devoted love for God leads to love in the church family, or the brotherly kindness, which leads to our mission of loving the people in the world, even our enemies and others who are hard to love. This is the kind of love which is virtuous the kind we need to apply all diligence to developing in our lives, even as God does His work within us to make this kind of love possible even for flawed humans like us. Now, since there is so much confusion about love in our culture, I will also add what I often say, that there can be no love without truth. There can be no love without truth. I'll go even further and say, love that is a lie does not win. Love does not win if love is redefined as embracing falsehood. Love that is not true loses to love that is true every time, even when that truth is hard to hear. Think about it this way. We know that there can be truth without love, right? We know that there can be truth without love. Somebody could say, I hate you. And that might even be true, but it's obviously not love. So yes, there can be truth without love. But listen, there cannot be love without truth. If I say I love you, 
but I actually hate you. My love is not true. In other words, what I am calling love at that point is not love at all. There can be no love without truth. Love does not lie. Love does not misrepresent. Love is not pretending. Love must be true or else it is not true love. (laughs) And so let me be clear that we are talking about true love or godly love, not false love or worldly love, both in our text today and in our vision. When we say loving God, loving each other, and loving everyone, we call for true love, which for starters could never be to say that God is okay with sinful behavior. Why? Because what you have there is truth without love. I said that wrong. Because love must be true. Love must be true. If it's not true, it ceases to be love. It doesn't win anything. There's your next bumper sticker, I guess. Love that lies does not win. That's a joke. In fact, could we just end the sign wars, please? And the bumper sticker wars and the t-shirt wars... Why would I say that? Because what you have there is usually truth without love, right? And love is the virtue Christians are to be wearing on their sleeves. Maybe I should go back to godliness. Is your sign or your bumper sticker godly? Is it loving? As I've said, there is no love without truth. But there can be truth without love. Is truth without love what we're called to project? No. We need to speak truth in love, not truth without love. Moving on. As I've pointed out before, the virtues listed in our text are placed in a specific order for a reason. There's a progression to these Christ-like character traits, representing a process of spiritual development. One virtue helps to birth the next one. Have you got that so far? I hope it's clear in reading the text that each of these characteristics feeds into the next. There's an obvious flow to this passage, but where does this flow begin? If you look at the text, you'll see that it begins with knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus better leads to the development of these virtues, each one contributing to the next, while each one also helps us to know Jesus better still. And like hot fudge and a cherry on top of all that wonderful goodness, we should understand that ultimately the whole process leads to something very specific, that being an extraordinary, truly virtuous kind of love. Love for God, love for the family of God, and love for those without God, those multitudes who are still lost in the world. In fact, in many ways, love is the whole Sunday. Someone once asked me why love is listed last rather than first. In these verses, well, on the one hand, I think the process here actually begins and ends with love, and it all creates a cycle that helps perpetuate itself, a cycle that's mostly about love. But still, I want to share two reasons why I think love is the final Christ-like character trait listed in this passage. First of all, all of these virtues lead to love. 
Love is simply where this all leads. It's where it all leads. I, mean, I was doing good. I liked some of the other. I wish it like led somewhere else. I don't know. Sometimes we're like, love is so, I don't know. It doesn't seem like where some of us want to go with our Christianity. It's just not really where we, that seems fluffy. That, I know of some churches that that's their thing, and it's kind of, I don't know about that. Can we just, can we go back to moral excellence? I'm like that. I like that one. That was good for me. I, I'm not, I'm not doing it, but I mean, I know I should be. I mean, it makes sense to me, right? But no, it all ends up with love. Sorry. It's just where it all leads. If you really begin to develop all of these Christ-like virtues, love will be the conclusion, the result, the top of the mountain. In fact, you cannot fully practice pure love without the development of these other virtues, and you cannot develop these other virtues without love. For example, Moral excellence leads to love because true love is the ultimate moral choice. Immorality is unlove acted out on another person. Self-control, second thing we talked about, leads to love because true love is unselfish. In other words, the more you love others, the more you can control yourself for their sake. Perseverance leads to love because true love is forever. Love always perseveres. Godliness leads to love because God is love, and to honor Him in our conduct is to love Him. We represent God best when we love as He loves, with grace and truth. Ultimately, the Christ-like life is all about love. That's not just fluff. That's biblical. Becoming better believers is really a process of becoming better at loving God, loving each other, and loving everyone else. Love is presented last in the development process outlined in our text because the development of every one of these Christ-like virtues leads to love. Secondly, I think love comes at the end of this list because love validates all of the other virtues. If it were possible, it isn't, but if it were possible to have moral excellence, self-control, perseverance, and godliness and not to have love, those other traits would still be meaningless. These other virtues we've learned about are invalid without love. Even if you were to somehow mind all your P's and Q's and find it within yourself to do everything right for some other reason than love, you would have accomplished nothing of real value. Why? Because a Christ-like virtue without love is simply not of Christ. It's human. A godly virtue somehow practiced without God's love is a poor substitute, a counterfeit, a poser. A virtue that doesn't result in love is not a virtue at all because the point of every virtue is love. The Bible puts it this way. If I could speak in any language in heaven or on earth but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I knew all the mysteries of the future and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would I be? And if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move without love, I would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would be of no value whatsoever. There are three things that will endure, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. 
Now, every, every week in this series, we've spent some time defining each of these virtues. We've asked, what does moral excellence mean? What does godliness really mean? Maybe you're thinking that we don't need to spend any time defining love. I mean, who doesn't know what love is, right? Foreigner didn't know. Remember their song? I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Everybody awake? Good? This is the rock band week, I guess. I don't know. Truth is, most people don't have a good grasp on what love really is. That's partly because love is a word we use for so many different things. I love my wife. I love America. America. <laughs> I love coffee. I love my kids. I love my pet. I love sushi. I love you. But I mean something a little bit different in all of those instances. I certainly don't love you the same way I love my wife. But good news, I don't love you the same way I love sushi either. You mean more to me than a raw piece of fish. <laughs> what does love really mean? Well, that's the first, two of large, two, first of two larger questions that I want to answer this morning. First question, what is love? What do most people think? Most people think love is basically a feeling. No matter how many times a preacher says love is not a feeling, if we're honest, most of us still think love is something we feel in our heart, something that sweeps us away, something that brings a smile to our faces or sometimes tears to our eyes. At best, we tend to think of love as a high-level emotion. But I'm here to tell you again that love is not an emotion at all. Love itself, as God defines it, is absolutely not a feeling you have for another person. I'll say it once more. Love is not a feeling that you have for another person. Right now, some of you don't agree, but hear me out. Listen, obviously, love can and will cause emotional feelings, powerful feelings. The feelings caused by love are the stuff of life. Yes, love causes feelings, but love is not, in essence, a feeling itself. Why does this matter? It matters because you can't always control emotions. But here's the newsflash. You can control love. You can actually choose love. Back in the days of planned marriages, people proved this all the time. Have you not seen Fiddler on the Roof? Do you love me? Back then they had arranged marriages, you see, and they might become married and hardly know each other, much less feel love for each other. I think that in the past, people generally learned to love each other more than they do today. In the past, people knew it was possible to learn to love someone you didn't automatically love. I think because life was not so self-centered. Life was more about the family and the community and less about the individual and sometimes even for the sake of survival, that meant people learned to live with each other and they learned to love each other. There's a reason divorce used to be rare. 
And I'm not suggesting arranged marriages were a good thing, although just for my daughter, I had thought that maybe it would be, but I'm not saying <laughs> that it's a good thing. But it helps prove the point that we've got it all wrong when it comes to love. We think love is, that an, emo- is an emotion that you feel when you're infatuated with someone else, or better, we think it's that feeling um, that you have when maybe your grandchild says something sweet. But I'm telling you that while these are feelings of love, love itself is a choice. Would you believe some people don't have those feelings toward their grandchildren? Some people don't feel love for their children, if you can believe it. Some people abuse or even kill their children. What happened? They did not choose love. They didn't feel love, so they just didn't have it. How sad is that? The truth is that you can't always feel your way into true and lasting love, but you absolutely can love your way into those feelings. Loving feelings develop when love is chosen. You may not have to choose love when you're dating, but I promise you will need to choose love at some point or various points in your marriage. And that'll be true of every single relationship in your life. At some point, you'll have to choose love with that friend or whoever it is, or love will absolutely be lost. But people just don't believe this is possible in our culture. They think that love has to be automatic, or else it is not love, which is the opposite of the truth. They think that love just happens to you, coming and going, as if love itself had a will of its own. We say things like, I fell in love, meaning that we had no control over it. Someone might say, I can't help it, I'm in love with her. Or worse, I just don't love him anymore. We act as if love were completely outside of our control, but that's a lie, a deception, a falsehood. The Bible tells us that love is two things, neither of which is based on feelings, and neither of which is uncontrollable. The Bible teaches, number one, that love is a choice. Countless verses command us to choose love. Colossians 3.14 says, And over all these, put on love. Love is something you can put on, like a coat. It's a choice. It's the commitment to care. You can decide to love. You can decide who you will love. But even right now, some of you are thinking, I, I, just, I just can't do that. I just can't love that person or those people. Listen, what you really mean is, I just can't make myself have loving feelings. The problem lies in your definition of love. Love is a choice. For Jeremy Courtney, love was operating on Iraqi children, some of whose parents probably wanted him dead. You can choose to love. I prove this again to myself every time I go on a mission trip. Maybe that's part of why I keep going, even though I sometimes would like to think I've paid my dues or... Uh, I've challenged myself enough, or maybe I've taken enough cold showers or some other such nonsense, but no, I'll come back from Nicaragua with our team here in a month or so, and I will have remembered what love is. I'll remember. That love is a choice, and when you choose love, the feelings can follow. Even in a few days' time, every year, 
Each of us is assigned a Nicaraguan family to sort of love on while we're there. We are given their pictures ahead of time. We pray for them before we go, usually for several weeks. After arriving on the field, we work alongside that family and visit with them as we're building their little homes. Each morning, we share in Bible studies and sing together. Mostly, we just make it a point to intentionally love and care for a particular group of people, people who are very different from us and whom we never knew before. We choose to love for one week, and you can't believe what happens. What, what is the difference between what we do with our time in Nicaragua and what we do here at home? Why don't we love the people in the house next door intentionally like the ones we loved on in our mission trip? Our neighbors are no different. They have problems. We don't know them well. We're afraid we won't agree about important things. They don't know us well. Sure, it's awkward at first, acting in love toward people we don't know, but not for long. On mission, we simply choose to love them for a week. We find ways to show the love of Jesus to the people, just playing with their children, learning a few Spanish words from the adults, praying together sometimes, smiling a lot, looking into their eyes, show them that the one who sent us loves them. Just a few days of intentional love. And by the time we pull out of there on the last day, most of us will shed tears. Some will cry like a baby. <laughs> I feel like we're leaving parts of ourselves behind. I can hardly talk about the people in Nicaragua without getting emotional. People I still pray for, people I love. See, after one week, most of us will feel powerful feelings of love for those people. Why? Because we chose to actively love them during the time that we had. What about right here? I'm telling you, church family, we've only begun to tap in to the power of love in our church. And the powerful effect that our love could have on this community is yet to be seen. Love is a powerful choice. But step one is understanding that it is a choice. Perhaps one you haven't been making. Secondly, the Bible teaches that love is action. Love is something you do, it's a way of life. More than just words, love is a verb. The Bible says, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Love is a behavior. It's not just talk or even smiles, hugs, or pats on the back. We also meet real needs while we're there in Nicaragua. These are people with jobs most of us wouldn't take. And from what I've seen, they work harder than most of us. But they still need help because of where they were born. There is little or no opportunity to achieve success frankly, because socialism doesn't work. But in their socialism, there is also no government help because government programs end when the wealth ends. And of course, the church is there for the people, so there's little help for anyone. That's why we go. And we build decent, permanent housing for people who are accustomed to working all day and coming home to tiny shelters covered with nothing but sheets of tin or even black plastic like we use for our trash. I don't know how they breathe in these homes. So we build much better, much cooler concrete block homes, which they receive as if they were mansions. We give them bags of rice, beans, 
other staples, basic toiletry supplies sometimes, and we'll meet, meet other needs as, as God leads. One year we provided each family with a garden. You'd have thought we gave them new cars. We give out Bibles. Some of us teach them scripture throughout the week with the help of translators. We share with them the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, not the gospel of works, which they've heard before. I remember my family from a few years ago, a family which <clears throat> my kids and I, they were with me, had the um, privilege of leading to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Got to baptize them too. And that is exactly what they thanked us for. They didn't really even mention anything about the house. I mean, they obviously appreciate it. But they thanked us with tears for coming to teach them about God. It's, it's like something straight out of the Bible. Can you imagine? <laughs> but why not here? Do you ever teach anyone anything about God? Do you meet real needs where you can? Jesus did. And he called all of his followers to do the same. Love is work. Love is giving. Love is action. Technology problems today. If love were just a feeling, how could God command that we do it? Have you ever tried to command a feeling? I want, by pastoral authority, I command that you all feel happy right now. Does that work? No. No, you can't command a feeling. That's true. You cannot force an emotion. That's true, but the Bible does command that we love, which proves that it's not a feeling. But rather, love is the choice to give of yourself and the action of serving others. That's my definition. Love is the choice to give of yourself and the action of serving others. Friend, if you want to feel love for someone, if you want to feel the thing that we think of as love, choose to love them and put that love into action. The feelings will follow. This applies to love in the church, love in the world, love in your marriage, and love in your families. If you want to develop or even rekindle feelings of love, give of yourself and serve the person you ought to love. To feel love, you must first choose to act in love. Now, the second larger question I want to try to answer this morning is this. <clears throat> How do I love someone who I don't like? Others have problems with this? not just me. Does Jesus really want me to love people I don't know or people I don't like? Come on, you know the answer. What did Jesus do? He loved his enemies. He loved gross people, like lepers and sinister sinners who sinned even on Sundays. He loved the unlovable. Do we follow him? Really? Okay. But do I have to like the people I'm called to love? No. You don't. You really can't even choose to like someone overall. 
But after you choose to love them for a while, you might find out you like them better than you thought, even if you still don't like some things about them. I want you to hear this today, friends, and this is very important. You can loathe someone's politics, disagree with their beliefs, and be deeply offended by the way they live, all while still loving them. I can assure you that as good as you may be, you are not as offended by sin and wrong beliefs as Jesus is. And yet he died for sinners. What did Jesus say was the ultimate in love? He said, no greater love is anyone than this, but that he lay down his life for a friend. Jesus was talking about his love for us. People whose sins are as scarlet and whose righteousness is like filthy rags. Oh, there are probably many things about you and me that Jesus doesn't really like. But he loves us. Enough to die for us. If you and I want to be like Christ, we will need to learn to love those who seem unlovable to us. That's what he did, and that's what we must do. See, the fact is that your life is full of people you don't like. At first, you might think, oh, no, pastor, there's, there's only one or two. <laughs> just a couple people. It's just this one guy. But see, that's because you stay away from certain types of people the best you can, right? You're pretty sure you wouldn't like them, so you just avoid them. We don't like the way lots of people act, the way they dress, the way they talk, or even the way they smell. So we keep away because we don't like to not like people. Can I just say that pot smells like a dirty skunk's underarm? Man, it stinks. It does. But how many people around here smoke pot? Tons of people. Enough to demand a multi-billion dollar industry. Right, so I don't like the smell or other things about it. But I do love the people. Do I love the people? Or is that a whole swath that just gets unlove from me? What about, the late, what about the latest gender craziness? And it is crazy. I'm not going to lie. I think it's crazy. Has a whole generation unsure of whether they should be male or female or neither. Yeah, for many of us, that is really, really tough. Could, could never have imagined that this could have ever happened. And I could go on with things about other people that make us not like them, couldn't I? Couldn't you? So let's be honest. How many of you can start to admit there are a whole bunch of people that you really don't like very much? You don't like their habits. You don't like their beliefs. You don't like their lifestyle. Look, you just really don't like them. Most of all, we don't like people who don't like us, right? I mean, that is the big thing for me. I can, I can, I can get kind of around a lot of things, but I just really can't stand people who really can't stand me. If they don't like me or my beliefs, boy, I don't, I don't like them either. Not one little bit. But doesn't that kind of create a vicious cycle in the world? And who is supposed to break that cycle, do you think? You know who, the people of God, followers of Jesus. 
But pastor, they just make me so angry. You should see their bumper stickers. I just can't stand people like that. I really, really don't like these people at all. Who said anything about liking them? Winston Churchill and Lady Astor had a famous rivalry going on. They didn't like each other at all. So one day Lady Astor said, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your drink. Churchill said, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> Legend also has it that Lady Astor told Prime Minister Churchill, you are quite drunk. Churchill replied, I may be quite drunk, however, you are quite ugly, and I will be sober in the morning. <laughs> Let's face it, we all have people we don't like. I think we fight the wrong battle. The fifth virtue of a person who truly knows Jesus is not about like, it's about self-sacrificing love toward everyone even people we don't like. But how do we do this? I'm going to give you four steps quickly. And I've been using these four steps for so long. I am so old. I've been in the ministry now for 30, almost, no, yeah, 31 now. We're in July. 31 years. So I've been using these steps for so long. I really, honestly, I was trying to remember. I'm like, I think I might have gotten these from some, I don't remember. These might have been borrowed. I'm not sure because I've been using them that long. As a young pastor, I might have borrowed these just in case. At any rate, here are the steps to loving unlovable people are those who you do not necessarily like. First of all, you need to experience God's love yourself. You need to feel and understand how deeply God loves you. You need to get it that there is no point, that there is no point when God doesn't love you. I'm not sure He will always like you, frankly, or some of your behaviors, certainly, but He always loves you, always. Even when you're not lovable, even when you don't love Him, He still loves you. Now, once you get that, get this. I'm not talking about head knowledge or embracing the fact that God always loves you. No, this is about experiencing His love. You need to know God's love, not just as information to accept, but as a revelation to receive. This is one of the key truths of the text we've been studying from Peter. This is what it means to know Jesus more than anything, to know his love. The Apostle Paul also wrote about this. For example, in Ephesians 3, where he writes, I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your heart, living within you as you trust in him. May your roots go deep into the soil of what? God's marvelous love. And may you be able to feel and understand how long, wide, deep, and high his love really is, and experience this love for yourselves. Notice the words feel and understand. This is very important. Most of us have the head knowledge that God loves us. We can affirm the idea of God's love, but that is not enough. God wants you to experience His love deep down to the point that it changes how you think. So much of His love that you don't know what to do with it, that it overflows. Have you ever experienced the love of God, the depths of your soul? Just as Paul prayed for this church at Ephesus, I pray for you. 
that you would experientially comprehend God's love. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why. Because unloved people are unloving people. Always remember that those who are unloving are feeling unloved themselves. That's why experiencing God's love is the starting point for loving others. Before you can ever really love anyone else, especially those you don't like, you must know experientially that God loves you deeply. So deeply He gave His very life to forgive you and to know you. That brings us to the second step. In order to love people, especially the ones you don't like, you must learn to forgive those who have hurt you. Now, forgiveness is a huge topic, and I don't have time to, to make this a sermon about how to forgive, but just know this. If there are still people in your life whom you have not forgiven, that will negatively impact your ability to love everybody else. The Bible says, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, which is completely. But why? Because it is impossible to love one person fully while hating someone else. Hate and love have a hard time living in the same heart. I cannot love my kids fully as I could, as fully as I could if I'm resenting my parents. I cannot love my wife fully if I haven't forgiven a former girlfriend or spouse. I can't fully love one person while hating or resenting someone else at the same time. A bitter heart is a divided heart. Statistics tell us that one out of every three women will be abused in their lifetime. One out of every seven men will be abused in their lifetime. That's very, very sad. And it also means there are a lot of people in this room who have a lot to forgive. I've talked about forgiveness before and I will again, but get this, you cannot fully love the people currently in your life if you still haven't forgiven someone in the past. And see, this is why God can love you with the everlasting fullness of His love. He can love you fully because He has fully forgiven you by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. God declared the cross to be entirely sufficient. God is our example in this fact. The heart that fully forgives is the heart that fully loves. Your love of any one person is throttled down to the point at which you've not forgiven somebody else. If you want to love more fully, you're going to have to somehow find a way to forgive more fully. Third step to the effort of loving people you may not like is to think loving thoughts. Maybe that sounds fluffy. But Jesus taught on more than one occasion that from our thoughts, our actions will follow. The Apostle Paul said, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing that raises up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I covered this concept earlier in the series. You can control your thoughts, and so much of it, of what you do or do not do, starts with what you do or do not think. So how do you think loving thoughts toward an unlovely person? It's easy to think good thoughts about people who are wonderful to you, but what about all those other people? You do it by focusing on their hurts, their problems, and their needs. You do it by thinking loving thoughts about them. Hey, do you really want to make progress? Anybody, are we serious about becoming better believers, the title of this series? I'm telling you. I'm telling you right now how. Start thinking differently about people. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, put away all bitterness and wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Put away all bitterness and wrath. I don't know why God doesn't just destroy Portland right now. Sodom and Gomorrah. Put away 
wrath. It's not our our place. And anger. Oh, nobody's anger. Nobody has angry anger in this room or anything about anything that's been going on in the world. Put away. Put away anger. It's Ephesians 4, uh, 31, I think. Put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander. We over-inflate things. Along with all malice. That means wanting something bad to happen to people. Be kind to one another and tender-hearted. Most of those things need to be worked out in your thought life, you see. Because if you're going to have love for the people who make you feel these ways, bitter and angry, you're going to need to change your thoughts. Jesus said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind did Christ Jesus have? He had the kind of mind that loved even Judas, the one who betrayed him. I don't have time to make that case, but I do believe Jesus loved Judas, even though he knew what was going to happen. How did Jesus have this mind of love toward his betrayer? Betrayer. Well, he didn't merely think of his own interests. He was considerate of what made others the way they were. He had a mind that thought loving thoughts toward people, even though he knew already that every last one of them was going to let him down. So what about you? How do you think about this other person or group of people that you're called to love that you don't like? Have you ever thought about their hurts, their problems, their needs? You think they've had it easy? They haven't. What have they been through? What have, what have they maybe even, how have they maybe been brainwashed? What propaganda have they believed? Can you not find some compassion for them in your heart? What if you could even be part of the solution? That won't happen until you start thinking loving thoughts about them. And I'll add that you can turn those thoughts to prayers and pray for your enemies as Jesus put it. After all, Jesus even prayed that we would be forgiven from the cross. He was thinking loving thoughts about those who were killing him. And we can't even find a way to think loving thoughts about people who just have a different opinion. I can picture Jesus thinking from the cross. Oh, these fervent Pharisees. They are so zealous to do the right thing. And here they are doing exactly the wrong thing. Father, forgive them for their ignorance. In having me killed, Jesus loved us even when we were the most unlovely, and he did so at least partly by thinking lovely thoughts about us, loving thoughts. This brings us to the final step that can help you learn to love those who you may not like. Step four, begin acting in a loving way. Here's where it really gets hard. You've experienced the love of God. You've forgiven those who have hurt you. You've started to think loving or compassionate thoughts about people you don't automatically like. And now you need to begin acting in a loving way toward them. You could start by saying hello. Show some interest in his or her life. Have a conversation. Find out what their concerns are and offer to pray for them. When the time is right, maybe invite this person to church instead of hoping they don't show up. Or if this person's already in your church, (laughs) make a point to include them in a conversation. Even invite them on an outing 
with friends. Yes, I'm talking about actually willing yourself to act in a loving way toward those you don't like. Where did we get the idea that following Jesus would be easy or come naturally? Maybe somebody says, isn't acting in love towards someone you don't like being hypocritical? If I'm acting in a loving way toward a person that I don't really like, isn't that fake? My answer, absolutely not. You are simply loving in advance of feelings. You're loving by faith. And loving by faith is one of the most powerful things a person can do. In fact, loving by faith is revolutionary. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus gives four specific loving actions to take toward unlovely people. He doesn't say, feel friendly feelings for your enemies. Like those who hate you. Don't let it bother you when people curse you and just lay down like a doormat when people mistreat you. No, he gives four specific actions. Love them, do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. Actions. It's as simple as that. Put this into practice and you'll be a revolutionary person for Jesus. You'll also instantly become a better believer. Let's review. First, we talked about the overarching fact that love is not a feeling. Love is a choice and an action. Then I gave you four steps to loving those who are hard to love. I said you need to, one, experience God's love for yourself. Two, forgive others who have hurt you. Three, purposefully think loving thoughts. And then you need to begin acting in a loving way. That's the how-to. Now here's the why should I. The Bible says, let us love one another for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you want to know God, to really know him better and better, you're going to need to start learning how to love people. The bonus is that as you get to know God better and better, you're going to start figuring out how to love better people. Love people better. That's really been the underlying message of this whole series. The only limit, as, as I wrap this up and wrapping up the whole series, the only limit to what God can accomplish spiritually in us is the extent of our diligence. To see this, look back at our main text from 2 Peter one last time. And notice the first two phrases underlined in your listening guide. It says, His divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. And then later, it tells us to apply all diligence to the process of developing these virtues. And so again, the only limit I see in our text is in our diligence, in our willingness to submit to what God wants to do in our lives. We have this promise from God that as we know Jesus better, we will become better believers. And that as we are diligent to become better believers, we will come to know Jesus better still. What a promise. I hope this journey together has been as meaningful for you as it has been for me. I've made some changes. And dare I say, maybe, maybe I've become a little bit better as a believer. That is to say, a little bit more like Christ. 
Hopefully the others of you could say the same. What do you say we keep moving forward? Amen? <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, change our hearts. Help us. It is hard. I can't speak for all of history, but in my lifespan, it feels harder. Harder and harder to, to love people that, that don't love me, that, that I don't like sometimes. But God, if, if many of us in this room can admit that today, maybe we'll get to the point of desperation enough to really get on our knees about this kind of thing and really let you change our hearts God, people are dying and they're on their way to hell. That's what your word says. I, I can't hardly stand to think about it, but it's what your word says so clearly there is no way around it. And that's forever. And I don't wish that on anyone. So help me, help me to love them into your kingdom. Help me to do my part to, to proclaim Yes, your truth, and yes, to do it in love. And make sure it's your truth, and not political talking points. Because people's eternal destiny is in the balance, and you've said that it matters what I do or what I don't do. Romans 10 is really clear on that. God, get our hearts and our minds focused on what really matters. As we think about your followers in the first century, were they worried about Caesar and all the Romans and what they thought and all their opinions, or were they just trying to help people understand what really mattered to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son? Let us be the people you've called us to be and to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Make us more like Jesus Christ. And as you move and as you convict and as you lead us, Lord, help us to be diligent to respond and not fight against what you want to do in our hearts. Change us. We submit to your work. As you change our people, you'll change our church. As you change our church, you can change our community and beyond. I surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.